Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. Now, if you read my column yesterday in the Irish Times, you'll know that I've already been for a few pints outside Grogan's and I have to say it was lovely to see the atmosphere in town with people sitting out in the sunshine and enjoying the city after so much negative publicity for dear old Dublin town in the last few weeks. I don't like to speak too soon, but it does really feel like we're turning a corner and I hope you are all enjoying the novelty of being able to sit outside and have a coffee or a meal or a cocktail or whatever you're having yourself brought to you. I think we appreciate it all so much having not had it for a while. So whatever you're doing, and even if you're staying in and you're not quite ready to venture out, I hope you're enjoying that too, knowing that you can take your time and you don't have to rush out there and maybe you want to hand, leave it a few weeks until the excitement has died down and things are back to a more normal normal, let's say, whatever that is. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be transgender in Ireland. We have talked about this subject before on the podcast a number of times, but we've been thinking for a while that we should return to it. There is a relatively small number of trans people in Ireland, and yet lately there has been a lot of conversation around the subject, some of it helpful and positive and some of it not very helpful and quite negative. And we know from feedback we've had to the podcast that people have a lot of questions and sometimes people find it difficult to ask questions or worry that they might say the wrong thing. So we thought it might be useful to have a trans person in to answer some of those questions. And we're very grateful to Sarah Phillips from the Transgender Equality Network Ireland or TENI, who agreed to talk to us not just about her own experience as a trans woman, but to dispel a few myths and provide listeners with factual information about trans and non-binary people. We started with, I hope you don't think it's too basic, but we did start with very basic questions such as what exactly transgender means. And we covered everything from gender recognition legislation in Ireland to the importance of pronouns. And of course, and perhaps inevitably, that hot button live line topic of bathrooms also came up close to the end of the conversation. Sarah is the chair of Tenny and she's on the board of the National Women's Council. I hope this conversation is useful. If you've had any questions you've been wanting to ask, here it is, my interview with Sarah Phillips about trans issues. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. You're chair of the Trans Equality Network Ireland and you're on the board of the National Women's Council and you're a trans woman. And you've been on the podcast talking to us before. So before we get into our Q&A, just remind listeners of your own story. Yeah, um, thanks. And it's uh, really nice to have been invited uh, here to talk to you today. Um, I have been on the podcast before. In fact, I've been on the podcast, I think, twice before, talking about uh, Rethink Ireland and their their uh, funding of um, a back-to-work programme for women, which uh, Tenny Transgender Equality Network Ireland, have been involved in and also about women in the construction industry. 
Um, so yeah, so um, I've, I've been You're a regular. An, an old hat at this. Um, I suppose my little bit about my own story, um, you know, I came out in the 90s. I transitioned back in the early 2000s. Um, I currently work in the construction industry. As I say, I'm the national manager for a multinational company who we make very specialist products. I have been involved in the trans community since, again, since the early 1990s, uh, becoming the chair of Tenny nine years ago uh, for my sins. Um, but I'm also active in quite a lot of other areas around the trans community. I was involved in a founding member of the support groups that we started back in 2005. I work in um, as the treasurer of the International Global Trans Fund, which uh, provides funding to small uh, organisations, specifically in the Southern Hemisphere, small trans funds, uh, organisations, and also uh, involved in Transgender Europe, uh, which is the kind of umbrella body for all the trans groups around Europe and Central uh, Asia. Okay. Well, we're really glad you're here because you're so knowledgeable and both from your own personal experience, but also all the different organisations that you're involved with. And we really wanted to have this podcast just because we know that there's lots of listeners who have all sorts of questions around uh, the transgender issue. And we sort of feel it's really important that people can talk about these things. I know you agree as well, which is why you're here. So we're going to go very basic. I hope you don't mind, but we're really going to start at the, the very basic level. And the first thing I want to ask you is what does transgender mean? Um, so, yeah, transgender, uh, the word transgender is an umbrella term uh, for a many different uh, expressions of somebody whose gender identity or gender expression differs from that that was assigned at birth. So for most of us, we are assigned a sex at birth, either male or female. For a transgender person, you're, you do not align with that uh, gender identity. And similarly, uh, you may not express your gender identity in that way. So Everybody has a gender identity. Everybody has assigned a sex, so including yourself. Um, and I wouldn't dare to presume what you're, you uh, identify as, and I wouldn't ident uh, presume anybody else would. But in the end of the day, I, in my case, was assigned male at birth, but my gender identity was female. So uh, that's probably a very basic uh, definition of it. However, there are very many different um, kind of definitions in the middle of all of that. So you'll see, you know, um, kind of Facebook putting out 76 uh, and more gender identities. But generally, you tend to find most people identifying with between male or female or non-binary, which is somebody who doesn't identify with either male or female or identifies somewhere with both. Um and that's just that's just a general, quick, simple synopsis of it. And Sarah, just on non-binary, for some people listening who maybe are hearing the term for the first time or have heard it and don't know what it means, for some people they find that hard to get their heads around. How do you not identify with either male or female? Is there any way that you can explain that a bit further for people? Because um, it can be a bit of a tricky one, I think. Yeah, and, and in, in fairness, as a as a woman, it's very difficult for me to understand also. But clearly, you know, there are very good friends of mine who will describe it of having that sense of not feeling comfortable in either uh, a binary gender of male or female, or maybe some mixture of both. And and like I think to a certain degree, every one of us at times 
feel in a way, you know, having slightly different um, aspects of her identity that maybe cross over into those other identities. You know, sometimes there are women who will feel that little bit more masculine and there'll be those men who will feel that little bit more feminine. However, for non-binary individuals, this is a clear sense of their identity. And I think that's probably the best way I can explain it. I'm sure there are, you know, my some of my colleagues will explain it in a lot better way who experience their identity in that way. Okay, well, that's um, clear. Thank you very much. And just to say, you did ask about my, you wouldn't assume my identity. I definitely, yes, I was assigned female at birth and I'm, I haven't had any issue with that assignment. I feel quite happy in that. So just to clarify in case anyone's wondering. I say that though, in fairness, for other people to realise that everybody has a gender identity. It's not something that, um, you know, this is specific to the trans community. It's just that you align with the gender identity and the sex uh, that you were assigned at birth where a trans person doesn't. So it's trying to get that uh, explanation to make it very simple for people to understand. Because I suppose a lot of people just, they do just think of their own experience and assume that everyone else is the same. And I think we've done that with a lot of issues, not just with this issue in this country, particularly assuming that people are a certain religion or assuming that people believe certain things or have certain views. And I think what's happening, why it's really good to talk about this is that we can't assume anything about anybody in this sphere, that we always need to ask somebody what their experience is um, of their identity. But I do think that it's a new thing for a lot of people to to not just assume. So that's why it's good to, to talk about it. Let's talk about numbers. How many trans people are there in Ireland? And is it increasing, as some people seem to think? Well, first of all, it's it's really hard to say about numbers. Um, you know, globally, it's reported that approximately 1% of the population identify in some way that is variant to their gender assigned at birth. Um, so that would mean there'd be somewhere in the region of 49,000 people in Ireland, roughly. However, in reality, we in the trans community know that that's not the case. The numbers are much smaller. Uh, you know, taking data from our support groups, uh, from those currently in the medical system, those on waiting lists, those who have access to legal gender recognition, you know, the estimate would be probably somewhere more closely aligned to two and a half thousand, three thousand. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't more people out there who have not come out. There aren't more people who, um, you know, identify in some way or have some gender variant identity that is not explicitly within the trans community. So it's very hard to kind of put a number on it. But if you take that, that sort of numbers, that's probably closer to where it is. You know, if you look at gender recognition in the last five years, that's legal gender recognition. There's just over 700 people have applied uh, for legal gender recognition, but not everybody has, you know, and then all the time there are young people coming out, there are older people coming out and those numbers are increasing. Um, but they are they're only increasing in visibility than they are necessarily increasing in reality. Those numbers have always been there. It's not that this is something new. It's just that people are more comfortable to come out and be visible and look for support and look for uh, whether it's healthcare, whether it's assistance with social transition, with employment, with education, etc. And just on that, actually, because we didn't mention it earlier when I was asking, what does transgender mean? It's not as if transgender is a new thing, is it, Sarah? 
No, no. Um, like, let's let's be very clear. You know, trans people have existed forever. Um, you know, it's just that in the past, it's not always been safe for us to be visible. Um, you know, and it's also the information or the support services or um, you know medical services have never been there maybe in the past. And you know, in I I also and I should have probably laid this out at the start. I'm also the kind of founder and research main researcher in the Irish Trans Archive which researches trans history specifically uh, within Ireland, but also uh, of Irish people throughout the world. Because one of the biggest things we find with Irish people, as it is with every part of Irish society, we emigrated. And we emigrated for the very reason that it was probably safer to live your life elsewhere. Um, It was also easier to find support or medical care elsewhere. So it, it is very clear to me and probably not to the general public, but that there have been trans people here for, you know, over the last two, three hundred years. And and ironically, we've got a very rich trans history going back into the 19th century. In fact, the most visible trans people globally have come from this island. Um, you know, you can throw names like Albert Cashier, Edward Lacey Evans, Liza Wallstein, uh, Patrick McCormack, John uh, Murphy, all of these names and stories, whether you find them in Australia or in the UK or in America, they've all come from this island at some point uh, in their history. So, you know, we've been here for a long time and, you know, trans people won't go away. No, clearly. And the the this, it's fascinating that you're in charge of that archive to uncover all those stories. We must talk about deeper on that another time because it's it's really interesting to think that actually we had maybe we were more people than for our small population would suggest it's it's an interesting one now um just another question which i think is important and i think a lot of people listening will also be maybe grappling with uh sometimes sometimes gender identity or gender expression is confused with sexual orientation but they are very different things can you just talk us through that yeah so When we talk about gender identity, especially in relation to trans community, we're describing someone who has a different gender identity, as I said earlier, that is assigned at birth. And remember, you know, gender expression, then, as I said earlier, is how you express that identity outwardly. And again, in the case of a trans person, that is probably different than is assigned at birth. So, you know, as we to use you as the example, again, you you, uh, you know, present yourself in what is seen to wider society in a female way. Um, you know, and, and similarly, some people will do the same in a masculine way. However, your sexual orientation is very different. That describes your sexual attraction to persons of the opposite sex or gender, or the same sex or gender, or even more than one sex or gender. Um, so trans people can identify in a similar way, um, you know, to the rest of society. Um, you know, trans people can be homosexual, they can be lesbian, they can be bisexual, pansexual, asexual, etc., etc., etc. You know, but it's it's not relevant to your gender identity. They're very, very different things. They don't have an effect on each other. So somebody like myself who would identify as bisexual, um, you know, I could see my, my uh, best friend, who's another trans woman, would identify as lesbian but I also have a really good friend who would identify as straight because she would be into men and therefore is a straight uh, woman. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter what your 
identity is, your sexual attraction is going to be very different. And it and it tends to mirror the rest of society as well um, in, in kind of numbers a lot of the time. Okay. Now, in Ireland, we have gender recognition legislation now, which some countries don't have. So we are kind of a bit of ahead of other places. Tell us when that came in and what it means. Yeah, so, so first of all, I should say that Ireland was one of the last places in Europe. Oh, uh, to <laughs> got come. that wrong. I kind of thought we were, had pats on our backs well, there. No? We, we do have a pat on our back. And I, I just want to be kind of to kind of predicate what I'm about to say with that little bit of negativity. Um, you know, we, we must not forget that it took Dr. Lydia Foy 22 years taking legal case after legal case after legal case to push the government towards enacting some sort of legislation. Um, she won that case in 2007, and yet it was still 2015 by the time they had enacted um, legislation for her identity, gender identity, to be recognised. Um, what we did do in 2015 was we became one of the most progressive nations in relation to gender recognition. And that is to say that our gender recognition is based on self-determination. And so what that means is I get to choose what my gender identity is. So if you compare that to, say, the UK, which is probably our nearest neighbour, and this is we tend to regularly compare ourselves, um, the UK, for a trans person, need to have a medical diagnosis by a doctor. You need to have uh, spent at least proof that you've spent at least two years in the gender that you have chosen um, and that you identify with. And you need to apply to a panel that they then give you approval. And up until recently, you had to pay 140 euros or 140 pounds, sorry, for that privilege. And that it didn't always, you weren't always guaranteed that they would approve it. However, that permission process was removed in the Irish system. So it is a very simple system where you apply to the uh, Department of Social Protection for a, a document based on your own statement that you are the gender that you are requesting a gender certificate for. And then you can, with that certificate, you can apply for a change of your birth certificate to recognise the gender identity that you now are assigned with. There's a number of uh, things that just, and misnomers, I should say about that, in the sense that there's an assumption that that, that removes your previous birth certificate. It doesn't. It locks it away for nobody else to be able to access it except for you or the guardie or uh, your... Um, family in the in the case of possibly something happening to you in the future. However, this particular birth certificate is now the birth certificate that is relevant to you at the moment of being given to you. So that's a critical piece. Ireland were only the fourth country in the world at that point to be able to uh, declare self self declare or get a gender recognition based on self declaration. Um, the previous three countries prior to us were Argentina, Malta and Denmark. Ireland's system for adults was actually quite progressive, even with those three uh, countries. Um, however, there was no recognition for people who are non-binary. It was purely a binary uh, piece of legislation. And also, uh, while there was no recognition for under 16s, 16 to 18 year olds could apply 
but in a very similar way to the UK. In other words, you had to have two doctors' diagnosis, you had to apply to the court, you had to have parental consent, and then you would receive recognition. By the time that all happened, if you applied at 16, you were probably going to be 18 by the time you got all of that, um, especially with the medical system here. And therefore, by 18, you just would have been better off probably waiting and going through the simple system. On that basis, let's talk about when people start to realise that they are transgender. What age are we talking about? Well, it, it, it does differ from person to person. And we need to realise that, you know, not everybody has a clear sense of their gender identity at an early age. You know, people, some people will talk to you about knowing a clear, having that clear sense at five or six or seven um, but it, it does take time sometimes for, you know, many of us to understand what that means. We don't have that clear sense of what it means. You feel a sense of discomfort. You feel a sense of un, uh, unease with the gender identity and the sex that you've been assigned. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a clear sense of what it means. Sometimes that happens at puberty. Sometimes that happens later when you're in early adulthood. And also sometimes it happens when you get access to that information and you can start putting language to how you feel. Um, you know, so for a lot of people where we always talk about five and six and seven, you know, those sort of ages, not everybody uh, has that experience. But that's not to say that that experience is not real. It is real. Um, you know, and it also you have to understand is that those people that that have some sort of expression at five or six or seven, don't always mean that they are transgender either. So just to clarify that you do need to understand that sometimes people are just are exploring their gender, just, you know, kids playing around with dress up, kids doing, uh, you know, playing games, etc. But it it's important to ensure that the space is allowed for them to evolve and the space is allowed for people to understand what they're going through and express what they're going through rather than just putting these you know binary boxes on girls are pink and boys are blue etc you know and, that, and that's what's critical here but it does take time sometimes to be able to come to terms with it to, to give you an example I would have I would have clearly had conversations with my mum at at five and when you say five it was because you know our school system in my in my age I'm, I'm not young person was that kind of and I could you know, it was like, what was it? They used to call it babies, high babies, and, and then yeah. you moved into whatever. Low babies, yeah. And it was that moment of where we were all going to the convent, boys and girls, and then we were being split, going to the, the brother school and the convent, and the girls stayed in the convent, and the boys went to... And it was that moment for me was difficult. And and while I put my head down and, you know, my, my parents explained, no, I was wrong, put my head down, it still was difficult as I got into puberty, it was more difficult. And I remember sitting down with my father at 17 years of age and trying to explain it. And even he kind of was trying to explain it, that maybe it's a, and in fairness, he didn't throw me out, you know, in the early 70s, that was, <laughs> that was a good thing. It was a good result. Um, was that, that actually you were, uh, he was trying to explain it away as a phase I was going through. And, but yet it still never went away. And, you know, then as you get older, you know, uh, for me, you know, I got married, I had children, I had more responsibilities. And, and in doing so, then it's harder to unpack then your gender identity from those responsibilities. So sometimes in the past, you would have seen the age of somebody coming out would have been much older 
you know, so when the support group in Dublin started in 2005, the average age was 44. The average age in that group right now is 21. You know, so there's a change in the sense that people are not finding themselves in in life situations further. And that, that's not to say there aren't, there still are. But the numbers are very different of those coming out at a later age than they are coming out now. And some people listening might be surprised, you know, when you talk about you got married, you had children and all that. I mean, I can only imagine the the pain and confusion of of going down a certain ascribed path for yourself that didn't feel right. Just while we're on this subject, can you talk a bit about that, what it was like for you? Yeah, I mean, let, let's be very clear here. The, the first thing that, that underpins all of this is that I fell in love. You know, I fell in love with somebody that, you know, meant the world to me. And, and you know, it's difficult to talk about this now because that marriage is no longer exists, you know, um, and, and I have three children, um, you know, from that marriage and, and like one, they're all kind of part of my life still. Um, but, you know, it was very difficult in the sense that that uh, you were going down a life path that was not necessarily something that you felt should have been your life path. However, also, I would argue that I'm, you know, and I, I always maintain I get this from my dad. I'm a very practical person. You put circumstances in front of me and I deal with those circumstances and I try to make the best of them. The problem is, is as I get older and into, especially into my 30s, that became much more difficult. You know, my gender identity was becoming stronger. It was the need to express myself uh, in that gender identity was much stronger. And that was very difficult because now I was, you know, had a, a very uh, high level uh, uh, career. I had a family at home. I had three young children and all of these expectations of responsibility, family responsibility, because I was the oldest of the family. I was, you know, at the time, I was working with my father actually in another company, um, you know, so there was a lot of that kind of difficulty of it. And and that was hugely uh, negative towards my mental health, you know, and, you know, and I've talked about this before. There is a period of time in the late 80s and into the mid 90s where, you know, alcohol became my crutch, um, you know, and in, in hindsight, that's exactly what it was for. It was that crutch was hiding something um, that I was trying to deal with, that I was not dealing with in a proper and appropriate manner. Um, and that obviously then had an effect on my family, um, you know, and, and, you know, that's something that I will regret forever, you know, that this is something that you, you've you had to deal with. And, and also, you know, even being trans is something that, while I'm on Neville, I don't necessarily regret it. I regret a lot of the things that occurred around me being able to be myself, you know, and the effect that that has had on people that I love, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's it's a difficult conversation, but it is it is something a lot of trans people, especially if you go back 15, 20 years ago, were going through because a lot of us found ourselves in that Catholic Ireland, expected to get married, have children, settle down, all of those big family sort of ideals um, so, yeah, it's it, it was very difficult. Well, thank you for, for that. Um, going back to trans children, this is something I think, again, people think about a lot or or sort of maybe confuses people. I'm just thinking about myself. So I don't think I was ever 
what might be called a girly girl, if you know what I mean. I was off and I was and I still feel quite like that. You know, I think some of them, even the way I, some of the ways I think or might be more conventionally masculine or some of the ways I maybe express myself. And what we're not talking here about sort of girls like me in the past who might have been called tomboys or boys who like Barbie dolls and, you know, traditionally more girly stuff. It's more complex than that, isn't it, when it comes to trans children? Yeah, I mean, look, there are still tomboys in in using those languages. There are still kind of, you know, uh, girly girls. There are still, um, you know, young feminine boys, etc. And and there is that period of time where uh, trans kids and uh, people who express themselves in those ways will kind of be conflated and they will be mixed up. And and it's what's important, I think, is critical here is to allow people in the space to develop and explore those um, expressions of their identity, whether uh, it is uh, being trans or not. I think what you tend to find, and this is one, one of the biggest problems we have, I think, Roisin, is that, you know, when, when we look at some of the negative conversations around trans kids, they tend to look at research that was done over a period of time, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and we talk about 80% desistance of trans kids. That means people who don't become, you know, go on to a different gender identity and expression and, and don't go on to transition. And I, I, I know we're going to talk about transition in a few minutes, but but the biggest problem we've had in the past with those sort that sort of research is that the criteria used for identifying trans kid children was very inclusive. So what you had is that, you know, the evidence that was being used um, was was basically looking at more around how kids express themselves rather than actually having a clear sense of an identity. Do you know what I mean? In other words, you know, uh, we, we had this conversation with, with a, a Dutch researcher recently around that how who had done quite a lot of this research in the 90s. And, you know, he was saying that some of the, the issues that the criteria that you were creating was that if you as a parent brought your kid because, you know, your little boy was spending far too much time dressing up in dresses and high heels, and it wasn't just the once or the twice, it was going on a little bit longer than you were comfortable with. However, you may still find that that kid, that's all that kid was doing. That kid may grow up to be straight or gay or trans, whatever. But in fairness, what was happening was they were identifying those kids in a the same cohort as somebody who was clearly going in, a young child going in, clearly saying, I'm a girl or I'm a boy, rather than necessarily, you know, and obviously clearly identifying with a different gender identity. And, and the problem, therefore, is that those kids then who are just playing dress up, leaving, not coming back, is now a desister. So, the problem is those numbers are quite controversial. And also there's no follow up of those children, because as children grow up, you start to find bullying, you start to find peer pressure and kids will stop identifying in that way purely for safety reasons. And you don't. And then maybe they come back around as a young adult or a, or a, a little bit older and then they start to explore their gender identity properly and may go on to uh, transition or go on to express themselves in a different way. So there's no follow-up. So the problem is, is that those, those uh, research numbers are quite questionable 
And there is some work going on around the world at this point in time to try and bring them up to date. And there are some more recent research pieces that clearly give a better understanding of how long people, you know, identify, you know, what age they identify at, what uh, that persistence will say of your identity, um, you know, and that that will have a better effect, I think, on understanding, you know, who is a, who's a trans kid and who's not. I want to talk about stereotypes of boy and girl and how we should be kind of moving away from those anyway, because a lot of them are ascribing uh, desires and wants on people that they don't don't actually exist. You know, that people are more fluid, I suppose, anyway. Like you said earlier, people are more fluid than than we kind of have given them credit for in the past. And we're starting to understand that now. But it's a different conversation, I suppose, is what I'm saying. It, you know, the stereotype conversation is different to somebody identifying very strongly as a different gender than to the one that they were assigned. They're they're different things. They are very different things, but I think they do have a huge reflection on each other because, you know, I think one of my, the key pieces of me feeling comfortable for myself, and I know I've spoken to some friends about this, has been clearly that I am me. I, you know, I am a woman uh, who is 60 years of age, who has a trans history, medical history, uh, who happens to have fathered three children. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I don't pretend to be the girly girl with the heels and the dresses, etc. There are times I like to do that, yes. But generally, you will see me in my trousers and my T-shirts and my, my black jeans and my runners and what have you, going to rock gigs or whatever. And, and, and playing football like last night with the girls last night. You know, so I think that what we have to understand is that Actually, a lot of these kind of uh, stereotypes that are put on people actually then create issues for the trans community themselves because we end up going, being put in boxes when in fact we don't fit comfortably in boxes. And in fact, sometimes you can't go from this one stereotypical box to another because generally you can't uh, forget that you've had this other experience, whether you're 20 years of age or 40 years of age when you're, you know, uh, coming out, you still have these experiences and you will still have uh, certain ways of doing things and presenting yourself and expressing your own identity. So I, I think they, while they're, they are very different, I think they have a huge reflection on each other. And in the end of the day, there has been this societal understanding of trying to put us all into a box and that has to be broken down that has to be unpacked that has to go away what is the problem with a young boy playing with a doll what is the problem with a young girl out running climbing trees like this is the same conversation we had around the women working in the construction industry you know two of my colleagues in those conversations were one was a carpenter and I think the other was an engineer and they were talking about, you know, the experience that they had going into that industry and the reaction to them being in that industry. And yet they excelled in that industry, you know. So, like, we've got to stop all of these stereotypes and we have to break that down. And I think for a lot of trans people, that would make life a lot easier. But it still doesn't stop you identifying in a gender that is different to what's assigned to you at birth. 
Because Sarah, I'm just thinking about you when you did finally get to a point where you were able to express yourself in the way that felt true for you. I imagine that stereotype of what a female looks like, what a woman looks like, makeup, high heels, you know, all this kind of thing must have been an added pressure in a way, because, you know, you wanting to express yourself wasn't all about makeup or high heels. It was something deeper and much deeper than that. And yet kind of society has told women this is the way you look. So did you feel that pressure? Yeah, I mean, like, I have to admit, I I always say this, the the 90s were my puberty, you know, um, (laughs) So if you go back and look at photographs of me during the 90s, yes, I am that short skirt, high heels, uh, long blonde hair at that point <laughs> and, and dressing and makeup and all that sort of thing. But also, you know, I learned through that period of time about what made me comfortable, what made me feel OK. And and in lots of ways, you know, it, it, by the time I got to kind of fully live my life, the way I wanted to, I then start to feel, you know, that this is the way I want to present myself. That was fun. That was a bit of a laugh. That was walking around Dublin late in the evening, you know, whatever. Presenting yourself in that way was a bit of a laugh and it was good crack, you know. But in the end of the day, I what meant more than anything else was not that running around Dublin late at night, going to nightclubs and bars and whatever. It was going for milk to the shop without having to put your face on, without having to put dress and heels on, but also to be able to put, just present yourself to the world the way you saw yourself and in a way not care how they feel about you. And that was what was critical for me. I always remember a really good friend of mine, my my best friend, saying to me that she tried to transition during the early 1980s. And she went to London, she left Ireland, she went to London. And after six, eight months or so, she came home and felt she had failed. And the reason she said she had failed was because she wasn't being herself. She was pretending to be somebody else. And the problem is, is she had pretended to be somebody else for the previous 22 years of her life, the same way as I had done for the previous 32 years of my life. So it's getting to that understanding of being yourself, presenting yourself what's comfortable. And right now that means Sarah Phillips sometimes will be out on a night out with a dress and a pair of heels if it's a do or whatever. But a majority of times if I'm going to work, I'm not going to turn up on a building site when I have to go to a client meeting in a pair of heels. Let's be clear here. I'm the same as everybody else there with my boots and yellow jacket and helmet. Well, I think a lot of cis women listening can identify with that in a way, because as women, we're told a lot of things of how we're supposed to be and how we should present and how to make ourselves attractive in the world. And a lot of the time, that's not what we feel like doing. I think the pandemic has been really interesting for that. You hear a lot of talk about bras at the moment, you know, and women saying they don't want to wear them and take them off. But why do we wear them so much is because we feel like society will not like us if our if our breasts are saggy, you know, so we put on the bra to present to the world. Yeah, you might. I, I, I don't know. Uh, very early on in the pandemic, about April, uh, April, I think, last year. And I won't say who this was, but uh, the person was working with us as a consultant um, because they, they've, they've moved on to other things and bigger and better things. But the, the funny thing was we had this very conversation, just her and I. And both of us were in the same were in the same argument. No, it's not on today sort of thing, because, you know, the release of freedom, you know, was just, uh, 
was just just a, a brilliant. But yeah, it was. It's so many. I've had so many conversations with different people. Uh, you know about that exact subject. Why are we wearing it? You know. Yeah. So I, I was just. I mean, I know it's a very different thing, but I think there's a certain bit of um, co- correlation there as well in terms of the pressure on women, particularly, to be a certain way in the world in order to to sort of ex- be acceptable to to society. Yeah, and funny enough, it's 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 also similar in a very similar way to men. And and I would reflect this for the very simple reason that because a lot of conversation when we talk about trans issues. We don't reflect the trans male community. And and for a lot of them, if you look also, there's this rush to being very masculine, to going to the gym and building your muscles up and being a man and doing all. The, and in fact, sometimes and it's it's horrible, but sometimes you also see that slight little bit of misogyny moving in. To to that kind, of, you know, and I'm not saying that's for everyone very far, but just on occasion you'll see it occurring, and you're kind of wondering where's this coming from. But it's this, as I say, rush to becoming uh, to an outside world to fit that stereotype, and and it it is critical that we understand that this is not just trans women, this is trans men, it is people who are non-binary. It's trying to fit in a box of how society says you should be and how you should express yourself. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, Now, let's talk about the term transition. What does it mean? Because there are many different ways that a person can transition. But I think a lot of the time when people don't know too much about it, they go immediately to this idea of some kind of surgical or medical transition. So can you tell us about the different transitions? Yeah, I mean, first of all, as you say, transition, the word transition is a confusing term, clearly. You know, uh, in the past for a trans person, it was understood as a medical transition where you moved, as we said, from one box to another. Um, But remember, you know, transition for every individual is, it takes on all sorts of forms, you know, throughout our lives, no matter what it is, we go from children to teenagers, teenagers to young adults, adults to we go from married, unmarried to married. We go from unqualified to qualified. We go from, you know, uh, healthy to unhealthy or the other way around, um, you know, and back again. Um, so, you know, there are a million different ways to transition, you know, and and I think it's important to understand that for trans people, it can mean very different, different things. Um, what most people assume is that it is moving from that one box to another, but it mainly can include social transition, so expressing yourself in a different way. So instead of of uh, me going for the pint of milk to the shop, expressing myself as male, then it's expressing myself as female in a in a feminine manner, more so. Or it can mean uh, specifically looking to change your legal identity. So going and applying for a gender recognition certificate and changing your name by deed poll, it can mean medical treatment. It can still mean that. But for lots of different ways, medical transition isn't all about, you know, getting diagnosed, uh, getting hormone treatment and then having surgery. For lots of individuals, for different reasons, that can be some of those. And for others, it can be all of those. So... You know, I've I've friends of mine who could not have surgery for medical reasons, but they've clearly socially transitioned and, you know, had medical uh, support, etc. They've they've had psychological supports, etc. 
um, and clearly identify in one gender that is differs from what they've been assigned at birth. So it's about finding that spot where you're most comfortable. And it's going from where society sees you and has assigned you to where you are more comfortable. And I think that for me is the key definition of transition. Um, you know, but we all continue to transition no matter how, you know. Okay. And and sort of on this then, Sarah, what is it okay to ask a trans person and what is it not okay? Because, you know, some people, a lot of people listening to this podcast will not know any trans people, right? So they, they don't have friends or people in their families who are trans. And then if they did meet somebody, they might feel like, you know, it's okay to just ask them everything they want to know because they're curious or also just to express kind of um, an interest in the person to show almost like, oh yeah, I'm cool with this. And now tell me about this and that and the other. But can you sort of let us know uh, what's, what's appropriate and what's not? Because, you know, I think the people have different ideas about this. Yeah, for, first of all, the key piece is ask yourself, what is it okay to ask you? That's the first thing. So it's not okay to talk about surgery or my body, you know, how would you feel if I was to ask you about your surgeries or about your body, etc.? And I think that's what's key. I think it's about letting the trans person share their story with you and be comfortable with what they want to share rather than you constantly asking them questions. Let them provide you the information rather than the other way around. I, people will be curious and we're all curious. We all want to know, but you have to provide respect as well, because they are already going through a lot. They have taken you into their confidence in whatever whatever level or whatever area they've gone. So just be respectful the same way as you would expect somebody else to, uh, you know, behave towards you. I think that's what the first thing is key. If If they're coming out to you, ask them how you can help. That's a simple question. That's okay to ask. And, and explain to them you're there to help if they need that help. And I think that that is what's key. But I think stay away from all of those questions that you want to ask. If you have to think about whether it's okay to ask that question, it's not okay to ask that question. Mm. It's funny because I'm very clear um, about not talking to people about whether they want to have children, whether they you know, have they having difficulty having children? I think it's sort of in the same ballpark. Uh, some people just think it's okay to ask, um, say, heterosexual women about about their, you know, reproductive kind of lives. I find it so offensive, but other people think it's completely normal. But I put it in that bracket almost. I wouldn't assume anything about anybody's, you know, health or, or well-being or surgeries or anything like that. Yeah, and it, it comes back again to those stereotypes that we talked about earlier, you know, like, Let's let's be very clear, you know, we're of an age, I'm of an age anyway, that that, you know, young women, as they get out of their teenage years, are being pushed to when are you getting married? Then you get married. When are you having kids? You know, you're, you're like, I remember talking to my mother about this, you know, that that I think there was a there was a couple of months where my granny was going on about her. You know, you're not pregnant yet. You were married three months. You're not pregnant yet sort of thing. So there's always been that kind of societal pressure especially on young women um, or on women generally about these questions, about asking these things. And I think we have to stop and think about those pressures that we've put on people in the past, that we've got to stop that and we've got to stop asking those questions. But we've also got to allow people to understand that just because we don't ask questions 
doesn't mean we're not here to support you. And if you want to share, then we can uh, talk and we can ask questions. And if you're okay to ask questions, because as I said, I think I've said this to you before, you know, I'm happy for anybody to ask any question you want, but I will explain to you why I may not answer it if I feel it's inappropriate. But that's not okay to ask every trans person that because they are not in the space or maybe as long in the tooth as I am or, you know, maybe even they're still exploring some of their issues that they need to get to deal with, you know, whether they're going to go through medical transition, whether they're going to have surgery, all of these things are maybe in their future. And if they're in their past, well, it's none of your business. Okay, let's talk about pronouns, because this is something that if people listening are on Twitter, they'll see in some people's Twitter biogs where their people are referring to themselves he or or he, him or she, her. Uh, Why are pronouns important in that way? And um, what should people know about them? I think people feel, you know, funny about if they make a mistake and they say the wrong one, you know, that they're going to be cancelled or, you know, even asking questions can make you feel like you might be cancelled. But what's your thoughts about pronouns and how important they are? Well, again, it comes back to respect. Um, You know, if somebody is asking you to respect them by using certain pronouns, it's the same way as somebody is asking you to respect them by calling them their name. So if you ask me to call you Roisin, you don't want me to keep calling you John every five minutes. You know, so it's the same way as if somebody is asking you to use she, her pronouns or he, they or he, uh, him or they, them pronouns. It's about respect. I I take the position around that, you know, if you make a mistake, it's a mistake. Apologize for the mistake, recognize the mistake, but try harder the next time. If it's continuing, then you're not trying harder. And I think that's the issue here. I think it's it's about getting used to it, trying that little bit harder, giving somebody the respect for it. I think about, uh, again, asking pronouns. I think the, the trans person normally, a trans person normally will tell you their pronouns or they'll put it on their emails or on their Twitter handle or whatever. But like I, I don't, if you look at mine, I don't put my pronouns on it. But then on the other hand, I think if you were want to ask quietly, is it okay for me to ask what your pronouns are and what what you want me to use then do it respectfully do it quietly don't make a big deal about it allow the person you know that space to give you the information and then move on um but it is a clear piece of respect to respect the person for who they are okay now you gave us the figures earlier on it's a very small number of people uh really we're talking about who are trans or non-binary and it is a small number but it does seem like we're hearing an awful lot about trans identities at the moment. And, you know, we've just we're doing a whole podcast on it and we feel it's something that our listeners will be interested in. Why has this happened? And I suppose maybe tell us the good bits about that and the the not so good bits about why we're hearing a lot about trans people at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I I think there are two main reasons why you're hearing a lot of um, conversation about trans people at the minute. The first one is a very positive one. You know, as I said earlier, it's all about the result of kind of positive visibility, about social acceptance, more education, more information, more support, more visibility generally. 
and and more people trans people being feeling safe in wanting to come out in wanting to express themselves but also more trans people willing to stand up and speak on our issues you know if you go back into say the 80s or the 90s you will see one or two or three individuals in the media who are willing to speak in some way about their their issues however you have a lot more now and in fact if you look at say our national organization tenny you would have quite a large cohort of people who we would use regularly but also you have a lot of other younger people who are not even connected in you will find in the media so so i think that's the first thing and and that that reflects global uh visibility of trans people you see people like Laverne Cox coming out you see even the negativity around Caitlyn Jenner you'll see these things still have a positive effect in some way because that visibility is there i think the, because that was not always there and and i would advise anybody who wants to kind of understand why trans identities were not visible in the past is go on to netflix and check out a great documentary called disclosure and it's all about uh trans identities in film and television over the last 100 years and the way the trans person is framed in a either victim sense or a perpetrator sense you know we're either the murderer or the murdered uh you know or the criminal um or the pervert or all of these various different ways so that has changed in the last especially 15 10 to 15 years and especially here in Ireland around the way kind of trans people were willing to be visible in the kind of around 2013 14 15 when gender recognition was being uh discussed and brought in etc so we see more trans people in the media and willing to be visible that's a positive thing however there is also a negative part to that and i think you know we see um kind of currently that were there's a coordinated attack not just uh here but specifically globally and we've seen quite a large part of it in the UK which obviously spills over here um by a small number of very vocal groups um and individuals attacking trans people uh people's right to exist and it's very carefully framed uh in setting it trans people against protections for women and girls and also young trans people accessing um support to transition or medical care and and that kind of has been going on outside of Ireland for a long time especially in the UK if you just look in the UK uh for the past 5 6 years been a toxic debate both in social media but also in main flowed over into mainstream media so if you just take for instance the the times and the sunday times in the UK uh, produced 324 articles last year alone negative articles on trans people and um, there was not one positive article nor there was not one article from a trans person in that period of time uh, in either of those two papers the bbc themselves produced 144 articles in the same period of time with not one trans person speaking or not one positive piece um, and those conversations are constantly in the media and they're starting to flow in here now and that's not to say that there aren't irish people with these views there are there's there's there is a, a cohort of individuals who and groups small groups are springing up um with these negative views However, when you start to look at a lot of the arguments, you can start to debunk 
a lot of them and take them, you know, unpack them into actually there's something else going on here. And for me, a lot of that is about the rights of a trans person to exist. So those conversations are happening. We've seen it in recent times, you know, over the last number of years with some very high profile names, people like J.K. Rowling, even Graeme Lenehan, you know, all of these sort of people kind of be very vocal in this area. And that has fed into Irish social media and now more recently into mainstream media. So, you know, we've seen some media outlets producing, uh, you know, op-eds. They've been producing kind of the, the letters pages is constantly full. And yet, ironically, again, there's not very much response coming from the trans community. There is, but it's not being published. You mentioned J.K. Rowling there. And now it should be said that J.K. Rowling would say she's not transphobic, for example, that she, you know, but there's a there's a perception now that, that she in this subject is a, is a terrible, terrible person. How do you feel about her and the things that she said? Because the thing you hear a lot when you're talking about these people is that they don't want women to be erased, right? This is a thing that comes up. Can you look into that a little bit? Why does that feeling of threat around this issue that if we kind of allow space for trans people, that somehow it's diminishing women? That seems to come up a lot. Yeah. Um, OK, well, <laughs> there's so much to unpack there. The first thing, if you look at J.K. Rowling, um, you know, J- J.K. Rowling, I think the problem was is that I initially her comments, um, initial comments were derogatory. They were uh you know framed in a way that maybe for her own point of view were not necessarily negative towards trans people and she was positive towards trans people she may very well i don't know because i've never spoken to the person in 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 reality however what happens then is is that when she is questioned on some of those issues because what she's doing is repeating tropes that uh, groups and individuals that are negative towards the trans community um, are using. And then when she repeats them, she gets called out on them. And when she gets called out on them, she doubles down. And that's the problem because there's no understanding of trying to unpack actually what is being said here. So when you when you look at some of these things around protections that we're talking about, as you say a moment ago, um, about this diminishing what it means to be uh, a woman. What you're actually saying, first of all, is that I'm not a woman. That's the first clear underlying part to this. You're not accepting my identity uh, as a woman. And that's the first part. The second part is, is that you're basically saying that I'm a threat to you within those safe spaces. The reality is I need those safe spaces as much as you do. Because... Uh, patriarchy within our society affects me just as much as you. And my history of where I've been assigned at birth has all of the negativity of trying to deal with those issues. And yes, I had a privileged position, you know, being assigned male for a period of my life. However, there's also the negativity of what I was dealing with in the meantime. And on top of that, now coming out to the world in a gender identity that is um, still found to be um, uh, kind of, you know, I still have all the same issues that most women will have 
I understand a lot of other issues, and this is one of the reasons, and you know why why I believe I'm involved in the National Women's Council Board. So patriarchy is going to affect me in the same way as every other woman. Um, you know, if if there is violence against women, it will still be also violent against me because I will still be recognised as a woman. If if I need to be safe. I will still need to be safe from the same reasons and the same issues that every other woman has. So the understanding of us um, reducing what it means to be a woman is, to me, a smokescreen. You know, when we talk about trans women being a danger to women in women's spaces, generally, as I said a moment ago, I need those spaces as much as other women do. However, I would also argue that men are not going to go out of their way to pretend or identify as female to get access to women. They will do it anyway. Many, many women have to understand that you're more in danger from somebody you know than somebody the bogeyman in a woman's toilet. And and while I don't want to diminish that fear because that fear comes every day with me, if I'm walking this these city streets, you know, I'm still have the same fears that every other woman has. I still have those same fears when I'm walking down a dark street or heading for my car to a car park. All of those same fears happen for me because they are not, discriminating against me as they would be to any other woman. And that's what's important here. I think we need to clarify and debunk a lot of these issues. Similarly, when we talk about trans people, trans women specifically in prison, for instance, you know, look at our numbers. The numbers are very small and there are clear issues around the individuals who are there and why they're there. And it's up to the prison system to decide how they are treated, not the Gender Recognition Act. So a lot of these arguments um, that are consistently put out there can be very easily unpacked. The other thing you hear is people being upset about, say, the HSE saying people with cervixes or people who can become pregnant. I mean, personally, I feel that refers to women. I don't care if someone says that. I think people with cervixes and women would would be nice for everybody if people feel that way. Do you think that's a red herring too, that people are pretending to get upset about that when really it doesn't matter? Well, the, the, first, thing, the first thing is, is they have every right if they want to get upset. But the first, what you have to start to understand is that the reason they're getting upset is because the trans community removed the word woman. The trans community did not remove the word woman. In fact, we, along with the National Women's Council, were trying to explain to the HSC, what are you doing? We didn't ask for this. You know, we didn't ask for the word woman to be refused. All we removed, all we asked for was, and, and would ask for, is inclusion. Because some trans men have cervix. Some intersex people have cervix. You know, some non-binary people have a cervix. So it's inclusion. So you start out with the word woman and then add on and anyone else with a cervix. So it's critical for you again to unpack that kind of argument. Yes, call the HSE out and say, why did you remove the word woman? 
no different as to why they happen to leave the word man in, you know, prostate cancer. Yes, but also some trans women may have prostate cancer. So so you have to be inclusive and you have to be use that language that is inclusive. But again, the argument was not framed in a way that it was about the HSC removing the word woman. It was also framed in a way that the trans community were removing the word woman. And that is what's key here. So why are you getting really upset? Why did you not go to the HSC and ask them, why did you go to the media first? These are the questions that I think we have to ask. And this is constantly every time. And the HSC are in a process of trying to be more inclusive, trying to add, um, change some of the language they're doing. And they're making mistakes. And we we accept that. And we've tried to make sure as a community that they don't make those mistakes and help that they don't make those, ensure they don't make those mistakes again. But, you know, even after the word woman is replaced and put back in there, it still was the trans community that was trying to remove it. Mm. Um, we've heard a lot about toilets. I don't know if you were listening to Joe Duffy, were you recently? Um, gender neutral toilets and some people going on getting very upset about about that. What are your thoughts about toilets and the importance of gender neutral toilets in schools or any other spaces? Yeah, well, f- first of all, I'm 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 glad we've had such a long conversation and it's taken this long to get to toilets. because (laughs) because for such a lot of conversations with trans people toilets becomes the first part point of conversation and and let's be clear here gender neutral toilets are not a new concept they're not something that the world hasn't been dealing with for years many other countries deal with gender neutral toilets in very or unisex toilets in other to use another way of doing it and I think it's also key to look at what really underpinned this conversation. First of all, the department uh, was trying to design uh, bathroom spaces that were appropriate, safe and more relevant to the future than what is currently um, in, in, the, in the space of, of building um, schools. They clearly also left caveats in their guidelines around the choice of having single sex bathrooms along with what they called uh, universal unisex bathrooms, you know, and also the design is around safety so that you could clearly see a teacher who's not allowed into that bathroom could still clearly see the wider open area but that the cubicles were were closed off and individuals had their own space. And I think I, I do take on board some of the issues that were raised in that discussion because, you know, I'm a parent as well and I've had uh, kids that I've had to worry about. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they're, they are, it's possible for the school to deal with these issues in a way that doesn't have to be a controversial issue. And I think the department has considered all of those. And when you read through the guidelines in detail, what they're doing is looking to provide options rather than put on direction. And this is what only happens. The point about it is, is that schools don't have to put in only uh, gender neutral toilets. 
they they can choose to put single sex toilets in, but they're asked to put in a gender neutral toilet as well. And if they want to do that, they're asked to do it at a particular design stage of the actual construction. That's what it is. Sounds fair enough to me. Exactly. And even the department said that it was a matter of choice for the individual schools as to whether those facilities will be designated as a mixed sex or categorised as male or female. And I mean, if I say to you, like if I had the choice between a gender neutral or a unisex toilet and a women's toilet, I'd prefer to go into the women's toilet. That doesn't make me a bad person, right? Well, I probably would prefer to go into the women's toilet. But that doesn't make me a bad person either because I've been in those situations because I've travelled the world and I do see areas, places where, you know, there are gender neutral toilets. You know, every year the LGBT community hosts the galas. The bathrooms are gender neutral every night, every time. Uh, When the trans community hosts an event, we tend to have gender neutral toilets, you know, because that is the way we see the world going. Because uh, what we're saying basically is those comforts and those those education pieces for us all, actually, we shouldn't be going there. Well, actually, I disagree. I think young boys and young girls and those young people who identify as non-binary should learn more about each other and should be more comfortable around each other and understand the issues for ourselves and be more respectful for each other. So I think, you know, and young people today, I have a lot of kind of time for them because I think a lot of them get that. An awful lot of them do get that. Yes, there's still some issues that need to be uh, addressed, but generally I think they do get that. And you will see more and more of them being much more comfortable with a gender neutral toilet. Okay, well, thank you for talking about toilets. I love talking about toilets. It's such a weird conversation, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Just you touched on it a bit, all these inflammatory debates. So whether it's about toilets or it's about uh, trans women in prisons or, um, you know, all those issues. Can you, if people are listening and they hear these things blow up and they're not sure what way to think about it because people can get very passionate and very vitriolic about it. What's a good sort of idea to do to try and find out the real information? Because what you're basically saying is that a lot of these things are sort of red herrings or there's more behind them than the actual subject that people are talking about. What would you suggest people do if they kind of hear one of these debates going on and they're not quite sure what what to think? Yeah, well, first, firstly, I would suggest stop and ask yourself, you know, why are you hearing these negative narratives? You know, generally trans people just want to live their lives. That's what we're here for. We're not trying to be all powerful, taking over people's uh, spaces, etc. All we want to do is live our lives in a respectful manner. So ask yourself where the evidence is. Why are you not hearing the opposite side of the the, uh, conversation? Why are you not listening to the trans community themselves who will provide you with kind of those facts and debunk some of these arguments that are, that are being uh, put out there. You know, Ireland has had a gender recognition uh, based on self-determination for five years. And a lot of the arguments that go on in the UK and even some of them that are being rolled out here, you know, clearly haven't happened. We haven't had all of those, you know, this problems that, that are being suggested 
Um, in fact, those problems occur in the UK sometimes with a gender recognition that works in a completely different way. Um, yet we have a self-determination model that provides people with respect for identifying yourself for who you are. And I think when you start to look at people trying to make these arguments, like I said about the cervix piece, you know, listen to what the other side of that story was on that Joe Duffy conversation. The trans community clearly said we were not asking for the word woman to be removed. Yet, as that conversation continued afterwards, that was forgotten about. That was removed in the conversation afterwards. It was clearly stated by a representative of the National Trans Organization, Tenny, on the Joe Duffy saying, show saying that's not what we were looking for. So I would suggest think about why these short, simple sound bites are having an effect on you when in reality the trans community are small. They are looking to be able to live their lives, to get on with them, their, their lives. If you check out and listen to trans people, look at our social media, look at our, um, you know, our website, the Tenny website or Belong To's website, you know, because one of the biggest problems we have is that the nar- these negative narratives are put out there in a as a tool to provoke and publicize. And let's be clear here, our community has not always been perfect. You know, you get provoked if you feel you're under attack, you know, constantly day after day after day and your identity is being trodden on day after day after day, there will be some of us who will attack back. And that is not always the most appropriate way to do. And we do try hard to make sure that people don't. But anybody who is constantly under attack, is going to step up and attack back sometimes. And that is exactly the tool that is being used here. Provoke, publicize, and then say, see, we told you so. And that is very carefully developed by groups throughout the world. And that is something that would I would suggest. Why are these issues being brought up in this manner? Why then, if you're being told... Trans people in sport, you know, trans women are going to take over sport. Where? The Olympics since 2014 have allowed trans people to, to um, you know, compete within the uh, area of their gender identity. Um, and yet we have yet to have a trans person at an Olympics that we know of. We don't have any world record holders. We don't have any elite athletes. And yes, there are moments of place that you can identify where maybe there could be an issue to have a conversation around. But this is not something that is a general issue across the board. And trans people in sport, trans people need sport the same way as every other part of society needs sport. Sarah, we haven't mentioned puberty blockers really uh, much. And I'm just thinking of the case in, in England of Kira Bell that a lot of people might have heard of. And um, people may have concerns about people taking puberty blockers too young and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that and just how, again, there's a lot of fear-mongering around that, I think. Yeah, again, there's a lot to to unpack here. Um, First of all, there's the reality and then there's the the theory, we'll say. Um, if If you take for the theory first, you know, one of the things that has come up many times um, 
around uh, puberty blockers is that uh, if you go on purity blockers, you automatically go on to cross-sex hormones, which is, uh, you know, in the case of a young trans woman going on to estrogen or a young trans man going on testosterone. Um, and what we tend to find is that the evidence then that is rolled out is research that suits that argument, where in fact there is a lot of other evidence, um, you know, that is, uh, shows actually the opposite. And it's more recent evidence. So, you know, one of the biggest problems we've had is, is that the Kira Bell case, um, you know, clearly um, was well argued by the opposite side, we'll say. Um, and I think a lot of the evidence that could have been presented was not presented. And we will find in the appeal, which will be probably another year down the line before that appeal comes to court, you will start to see a lot more of that sort of evidence Um you know, being put out there. Puberty blockers stop, um, uh, slow down your puberty. There, There is um, the point that it should, if you stop those blockers, introduce back uh, your hormones to the same sort of levels you've had before. That's not to say there may not be side effects. There could very well be side effects. And I think side effects happens in certain individuals as they may not happen in others. And that is the research that needs to be continually going. But there is already research out there that says that that is not a serious issue. I think the problem you've got is, is that people fear them because they think they're exploratory. They're not exploratory. They've been used for nearly 30, 40 years now. They're not just used in the case of trans people. They're used in uh, young children who have what we call precocious adolescence. So basically somebody who is developing a lot quicker and with larger amounts of, say, testosterone or estrogen than they should be. And therefore it helps to slow down that that development. Um, and they, they have been successfully used. And those kids don't go on to use cross-sex hormones. Let's be very clear you know, because they don't identify as trans, they don't identify as a different gender identity. They go on to live their lives um, in the gender identity per se that assume, I'm assuming that they identified that they've been assigned at birth. So so there's a lot of these kind of misnomers. And I think the Tira Bell case has just kind of caused that blip of where possibly it wasn't well defended and a lot of information was not put out there and researched that, that showed a lot of these other um, kind of uh, uh, programs of research and reports that that could debunk a lot of this information. Yeah. Also, it hadn't got a lot of money. One piece I would add to it is just let's be very clear in an Irish context. First of all, the healthcare system in Ireland is not easy to access. Uh, first of all, it is likely that you're going to be in the and when there was a system here and there currently isn't, um, you would be probably about 14 before you'd be able to access that system. Secondly, by the time you got to puberty blockers, you were going to be probably 16. By the time you got to cross sex hormones, you're going to be 18. And in fact, even then, that was the quickest possible route that you could physically get through it because the system itself um, was not, was unwieldy, it was slow, 
it was being provided by Tavistock in the UK with the, and they could only handle limited numbers. So the reality of puberty blockers here is um, not the issue that people are making it out to be. Yeah, because I suppose just to say about Kira Bell, people, she was saying that she was she wasn't challenged enough by the NHS when she went to transition, and there would be a fear maybe from people, very well-meaning people, that you know, young people who are who are who maybe have other difficulties or other issues are being kind of brought down a path of transitioning when that's maybe not the place they should be. Would you would you worry about that, or do you think that's founded at all? Well, first of all, we would always worry about somebody going down a path that they shouldn't go down. I mean, we would suggest the same thing with adults who are going down this. Uh, and and it is critical to make sure that every one of us get the psychological support prior to going making these decisions, because these are big decisions. And let's not fool ourselves here. They are big decisions. I would say, though, the big problem is, is that there's a gatekeeping um, questioning format that is denying the trans person's right to identify and a disbelieving system rather than a affirming system. And that is where the problem becomes, because you can still affirm somebody's identity without sending them down a medical process. And our our conversation would always be within our community to provide those social supports, those psychosocial supports, and making sure that people have a, you know, a wraparound holistic support mechanism around everything they do. Transition, you know, in whatever form it takes, is an awful lot easier if you have your family around you, if your friends are around you, if you're school supports you, if your workplace supports you. However, it also, you have the support to understand the various stages of what you're going to go through. The problem we've got is that with the healthcare system, a lot of the time is that is a gatekeeping process. In other words, I'm not going to allow you to do this unless, rather than do you understand it, it rather than doing it in a positive manner, it is approached in a negative manner. And what happens then is that people will be quicker to push and push and push rather than to understand what they are going to do and what this means for them. So I think, of course, the community itself is always worried to make sure that people are doing the right thing. And we put in support mechanisms before that. You know, Tenny, you know, supports... 11 adult groups now around the country. We have five family support groups specifically for parents, um, you know, and, and grandparents and uncles and aunts, etc. And also then around that, a young person's uh, group that, you know, can come along at the same time as the parents. And then we have belonged to another organization that we partner with, have a young person's group, brilliant young person's group called Individuality Between 14 and 23. And I would advise every single trans person to go and start at that point. You know, get your information, go look for support, build that support mechanisms around you. Medical transitions, not at all. It's part of your journey, but it is a good bit. It's an important part of your journey. So, you know, I think the problem is, is that, that people are afraid of it. And I think we have a medical system that is afraid of it. But we've also got a society that's afraid of it. 
Well, I think you said ultimately there earlier, it, these are big, big decisions. And these are not things that anybody takes lightly. And I think that's key. People going down these roads, you know, have spent so long thinking about it and worrying about it. And that's important to say that too. Um, I think we've shown that it's okay to ask questions, Sarah, I hope anyway. But it is okay, isn't it, for people listening who maybe still have questions and want to know more, uh, what, what can they do? I mean, there's lots of resources, isn't there, for people to educate themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, there, there are some really great resources out there. And I think it is, it's, first of all, don't be afraid to accept that you may not understand all of this. It may be very new to you, but there are there are places you can go for information. There are places you can go to kind of question some of these things that you hear. Um, you know, the first place I would recommend, obviously, is Tenny and our website. Um, if you are questioning your identity yourself, you know, the, look, check out some of those support groups, etc. Whether it's the Tenny support groups or, as I said, if you're a bit that bit younger, also uh, belong to as well. But also there is a family support helpline there, which can provide you with more information and um, which I can give you the numbers, uh, which which uh, you can reach out there uh, on a Tuesday or a Sunday. Um, and we have parents who are who have gone through this, providing that support for other parents, etc., and other family members. So there are there are groups out there. As I said, Transparency, which is our family support group, is available as well. But if you're just just generally part of the the uh, general public, the rest of society. Check out some of the, the, the voices, trans people's voices, um, and listen to what we're saying. You know, we're trying, I think we're very reasonable for the best part. I don't think, you know, we're this bogeyman that people are trying to make us out to be. Um, but however, we still need to make sure that our rights are respected, our human rights to exist is respected. And all we're asking to do is to be able to use the services that will support us as much as it supports the rest of society. Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking so much of your time to to talk through all these things. I hope it's helped listeners to understand things a bit more. But like you say, there's loads of resources people can go out. And I think when we do hear these things raised on on various places, and they're often quite inflammatory, like it's good, like you say, to check out what, what are trans people saying about it? What are the what are the voices that we're perhaps not hearing is something to, good to ask too. So uh, I know we'll talk about it again on the podcast, but um, in the meantime, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for asking me to come along. And can I just, just say one last thing? Just think about uh, why is somebody bringing something like this up when you're not hearing the other side of the voice? Good way to leave it. Thank you very much. That was Sarah Phillips of Tenny there and we're grateful to her for giving us so much of her time. Like I said earlier, I hope that was useful and illuminating and I'm sure we'll be returning to the subject again if there's any other questions that people need to discuss about it. But that's it for now. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast on Facebook and Twitter or Instagram, or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. We should also let you know that myself and Marion Keyes are going to be doing a Facebook Live uh, on Thursday tonight at 7pm. We're going to be talking all things 
pandemic and beauty and letting yourself go and not letting yourself go and all the rest I know it's going to be great crack so if you're around 7pm and you want to watch that go to our Facebook page and tune in and we'll see you there but until then mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.